The fact that almost all humans today agree that infanticide is a bad idea means that doesn't a believer that infanticide is bad is not sufficient for my identity because mm. there's consensus. Yeah. I need to know I believe that you don't because mm -hmm. that gives me a sense of belonging. Um, just like a private property means this is where I am and am not. Mm. Um, where's the boundary? And that has a huge risk because nationalism implicitly means that there's other who are not part of the nation. Mm. I identify with you differently to identify with them. And there is a part of us that feels, certainly in the universalist world, that feels, whoa, the minute you have other, you're in very serious danger. Mm. Um, Rowan Rowe, thank you so much for joining us again on JTV. Pleasure. Really good to have you Always here. Always a pleasure. Um, so let's just jump into some more questions. Some of these have been questions that people have submitted. Some of them are just things that I've come up with whilst sort of lying down at night thinking, what can I ask? What can I challenge Rowe Rowe on? <laughs> um, so uh, I learned actually when I was quite young that there are and I was always quite fascinated by this, that in Jewish law, there's three areas where one should rather give up their life than violate. So in most things, you know, if someone's holding a gun to your head and saying, eat this, you know, slice of pork or whatever, you should do it. Judaism values life. But there are three things where actually giving up your life is, is considered uh, something that you should do over, over violate. And the question is why? So I, I want to focus on one specific area of the three. So the three are um, killing someone else, murdering someone else, uh, committing idolatry and practicing idolatry and um, sexual immorality, such as committing adultery. So I just want to focus specifically on that because I find that a little bit challenging to understand, you know, to say I, someone should rather give up their life than commit adultery or sexual immorality. Surely these are things that could be you know, as terrible as they are, potentially they could be mended. Uh, you would think at least better to do that than, than, than have yourself be killed. So how would you explain that? Well, th there's a number of points here. One is, is, do we need to understand every single obligation of the Torah? But let, let's try to work on this question of adultery because I think it is interesting. And it raises, raises a big question of what a person would be willing to die for. In other words, what is more important than life? Or, or what is life about? Um, because whatever it is that we think life is about and is so important and central to life, or perhaps is more important than life, is what one ought to give up their life for. Um, so for example, not to kill to save your own life is, is not just a utilitarian question, because even if there's five of you and all five are going to die unless the five of you get together and kill somebody, you can't do it. So even though it involves five lives versus one, because murdering is something that's so devastating or so uh, dangerous for the world or so destructive. So it's clear that the, the Torah views the integrity of marriage, let's say, as something so, so um, sacred that violating it is, is devastating. And you'll notice all these things, you know, your relationship with God, let's, let's say not killing, that's a life. Um, this is the relationship that produces life. Right? Idolatry is a, a violation of God, who is the source of life. So it's at that point of the beginning of life, where, or, or, or the, the sacred nature of life, that we would give up our own life rather than violate. And people, by the way, do feel this. I mean, a significant amount of murders committed in a society that are not about drug crimes in a civilized society are about relationships issues. There is something very deep about this, you violated my relationship. Um, 
but it's also that we view a, a couple in marriage to some degree as, as, as really one entity. So this notion that especially around that sacred uh, relationship that produces life, that, um, that life is, that we would give up a life rather than destroy that, I think absolutely is central to what the Torah is teaching us. And again, from the societal vantage point we come from, which is all about the self, 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 and, and individual, 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 it doesn't make sense because the individual is sacred. So why would you give it up? And you, surely you can try and rebuild the relationship and even if you can't. But here we're saying, well, the individual is sacred, but so is the, is the relationship that's going to build life sacred. And so is the community sacred. There's a lot of things that are sacred. And when that relationship is sacred, then breaking it and violating it. A relationship of, of let's say, marriage is ultimately a relationship about what sexual behavior there'll be, that it's exclusive. The life-producing relationship will be exclusive here, allowing vulnerability and various other things that can come from that, allowing, you know, that this is the committed, that's gonna produce and nurture that life. So that is so sacred that, that yes, that life-producing world is so sacred that if it's violated, we'd rather give up our life than do it. And, and does, is it just about the um, marriage being sacred, but also about the effect that it can have on the individual doing committing the violation? So, for example, this also applies to things like bestiality. You know, you should want to rather give up their life. So it's also not that that's nothing to do with marriage necessarily. It, it is, but it's part, it's part of Torah's broader view that although sex is not a... The, the sexual relationship is about, um, amongst other things, the bonding of a couple and so forth, but it's also fundamentally oriented towards the production of life. Mm. And the Torah, which is not a, a modern liberal way of thinking, but the Torah's way of thinking, modern liberal way is that it's essentially a recreational activity. Mm. Um, and it's, as long as you know, there's no non-consent, in theory, if a dog could demonstrate consent, which it probably can actually, um, then there isn't a, a strong moral argument against that. And, that, and that's fair enough. That, that's, uh, I mean, that's, I think, Peter Singer makes that point. But the Torah has a totally different view. Its view is that is that the sexual relationship is ultimately um, very related to the life-producing aspect of it. It's not limited totally by that, but it orients itself around that. And recreational sexual activity that in a totally different space would be seen as as, as a wrong. Mm-hmm. And and but, but I'm saying that it actually does something to the to, to the human being. It, it, it sort of, in a sense. Demeans Perhaps, humanity or something like that? I don't know. Yes, in the sense exactly that. If this relationship is sacred, violating this relationship is a devastation. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, yes. Um, but, I, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's correct. I think there's, there's other areas of Torah law which might also have those sorts of, where, where we wouldn't necessarily say give up your life. That's all. Right. So, um, but I think, I think that's true. But you see, even the question, even the way you're asking it, you, our brain is starting from this modern way of thinking, which is the individual is the yeah, only really yeah, important yeah. thing. Yeah. So how it affects me is what yeah, counts. Yeah. Well, what do you mean how it affects you? Yeah. Right? Adultery affects lots of things. And even if you say, well, she let me or he let Fine. You know, there's a lot of catastrophe that goes with it. There's a lot of, of ripping apart of this whole thing. Mm. That is, that is, and that's, I think, the ter- you always have to know which worldview you're starting from. Because if you start from a worldview where the individual is the only thing that counts, mm. and you try and analyze the Torah where that's not the Torah's view, you're going to always come up short. You're going to end up with an endless list of questions. You're going to say, hey, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense. You've got to realize the Torah's not starting there. Mm. It's starting, there's lots of things that are sacred, and the individual's only one of them. Mm. And it's not ultimately sacred because there's institutions like uh, family, like community, like nation, like like uh, world. There's things that are also sacred, mm. perhaps more, perhaps as, and one doesn't trump the other, and therefore, and therefore, uh, those sorts of things are, are also fundamental. So you might also be correct, and there are sources that go down those routes, but you have to also come from the other perspective. And, and it's interesting how we just, you know, you, 
you get lots of... Uh, We're in an individualist society. And that's right. So you get interpreters of Torah like, trying to... Do, oh yeah, Torah, of course, only about the individual. It's not only about the individual. It is about, but it's about so many other things as well. Well, this leads us actually very nicely onto the next question, which is that we're talking about society being very individualistic, but one of the things that we're actually starting to see on the rise now is nationalism, where people are actually starting to say, um, I want to identify as something else apart from just being an individual. I think uh, Theresa May as prime minister said that people feel like if you're citizens of the world and you're citizen of nowhere, something like that, people need to feel a sense of national um, identity, being part of a family, being part of a community, being part of a nation. Um, uh, but then there are, there are other people who are saying nationalism is actually a very negative force and that it's something that leads to tribalism, it le you know, putting country first actually it shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. Everyone sh you should treat all people equal and, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't, countries shouldn't be focused on trying to preserve their own distinct identity but they should be welcoming all cultures. Um, what's interesting is that nationalism in many ways has like quite, the, the word has quite a negative uh, um, description uh, connotation today yeah. in, 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 in the world in the world today but what well, has done since World War Two it has done since World War Two yeah. maybe probably largely to do with what was going on in Europe and World War Two but nationalism in the 1800s actually was considered a very modern progressive liberal type of uh, oh, that's a very good uh, pause yeah that's a very good indicator what's the, the, the fact that an idea is new doesn't make it better the fact that an idea is new doesn't, doesn't make, make it, it better. better. It's a very important one to know in that because science progresses, we like assume all new ideas must be better ones. So people talk about progressive ideas. Oh, I see. That's such a ridiculous idea. What, because I thought that therefore it's progress. Maybe it's maybe it's regress. Right, 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 so, right, right. No, absolutely, absolutely. And you're saying therefore nationalism might not have been progressive just because it was new in the 1800s. That's right. I mean, right. And we'll talk about it. Okay. As you made that comment, that's something I thought. I just yeah. No, but I think it's so important because people, especially people who are young enough that they're typically in a, in a cycle of a new idea. Mm. There's like kind of this messianic sense, this idea is the one, mm. as, you know, or this set of ideas that my teachers told me in school and yeah. the internet's full of, must be the perfect yeah. ideas. Yeah. And the only reason people don't buy them is because they're backwards and just like yeah, people yeah. don't have to use modern yeah. technology. But yeah. all I'm saying is nationalism was perceived as a, as, whereas right now many perceive it as regressive, Back then, it was perceived as a way of breaking apart, you know, empires and, and monarchies and, and all that stuff, and actually identity, saying, exactly, let's create a, a modern liberal state that is based around our uh, distinct national identity. So uh, the question is, well, what, what's the Jewish view on nationalism? Because in many ways, the Torah is a book about a nation. Um, is just because we believe in the nationhood of Israel, does that make us nationalists? Uh, take us it's, it's a great question. And, and, and actually what's happening in the world, it, it, I think tribalism is an excellent way of putting it. See, people need an identity or, or crave an identity. Human beings are not individuals. This mm. going back to our earlier things. They aren't. And what that means is we are, on the one hand, we're autonomous, but we are so, we so can't function that way that we crave and need emotional resonance. Mm. We crave and need belonging. Mm. And we are therefore simultaneously identified on many levels as me, myself, me as part of a family. And as the family crumbles and breaks down in yeah. most cases, me as searching for some kind of community, some kind of society. But we also sense, need a sense, identity includes what I'm not. Hmm. The fact that almost all humans today agree that infanticide is a bad idea means that doesn't a believer that infanticide is bad is not sufficient for my identity because hmm. there's consensus. Yeah. I need to know I believe that you don't because mm -hmm. that gives me a sense of belonging. 
Um, just like a private property means this is where I am and am not. Mm. Um, where's the boundary? And that has a huge risk because nationalism implicitly means that there's other who are not part of the nation. Mm. I identify with you differently to identify with them. And there is a part of us that feels, certainly in the universalist world, that feels, whoa, the minute you have other, you're in very serious danger. Mm. Look what it did in World War II. Mm. Or look what it does generally. Now, you can't really escape it because let's take, you know, uh, today, political, uh, look at political tribalism, right? The world's increasing now becoming a kind of two tribes. But in America, it's been this way for a long time. That you've got a lot of people in the center of politics who lean one way or the other, but are malleable and can move either way. But you've got a lot of people whose virtue, their identity and their religion, and it is what the role religion once played with the good guys, you're the bad guys, is now very much played in, in political, especially social political uh, thinking. So we on the left, uh, believe in value A and B and C and D. And the only reason people on the right don't agree is because they're either greedy corporate people or they're racist fascists, so they're evil. Or we on the right have values A and B and C and D. And the only reason people on the left don't agree is because they're either a government domineering wannabe communists or they're, or they're just people who can't Jealous be lazy and can't be bothered. Yeah. Or, or they're people who just want, they just can't control their own instincts. What, you, all this labeling, see these are evil. And that's what's beginning to happen a lot. And it's about identity. I want to belong to the good. I want, it's like sports. I want to belong to this team and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. So it's very deeply instinctive. Um, it's unavoidable. It brings out the best in humans and it brings out the worst in humans. And the Torah wrestles with this question about the tribes and the nation in a very deep way, even what the role of the nation is. Um, because when you say tribes and that you're saying tribes well, and nation is two yeah, separate things. Yes, of course it is because Moses brings out twelve tribes. Oh, I in see. Egypt, okay, okay. And these tribes are, and 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 the biblical story is always dealing with the break, the kingdom actually breaks down with the split of mm. tribes going one way and the other way. Um, and right from the beginning of the first family that has the the the, the twelve who will become the tribes, we have these tensions. And very interestingly, in after the, in the fourth book of the Torah. The book of Bamidba, the book when when numbers it's called in English, when they um, the, we're no longer at Mount Sinai receiving a law, but we're now trying to build a a camp, a nation, so to speak, mm. that will be able to contain this law and move forward. There is a shift in the word that is used for a tribe. I remember hearing this um, years ago in Jerusalem, a person called Rabbi Weinberg, who pointed out that typically the Torah's word for a tribe is a shevet, and towards the end of this book it becomes a mater. Mm. Now. Interestingly, the word Shevet also means a stick, and so does the word Mater. Yeah. So interestingly, and by the way, that's true in English language as well. We often use, take a word that means, the same word means both a group of people and a stick, like a club. Mm. A club of people yeah, and, and a Or a staff. Mm. It's interesting, that's isn't it? fascinating. And, then, and he wants to argue <laughs> that a Shevet is like a club. A club as a stick beats you up, keeps you out, and a club of people keeps you out. Whereas a staff is a support. A staff is a stick you can lean on. A staff is a group of people whom you can rely upon. Mm. They separate themselves to some degree to build something for the sake of giving to other. And towards the end of the book, when, when Moshe, like some of the tribes feel like they're breaking off, you know, they say, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. And God says, but, and Moses says to them, well, what are you going to do about your brothers? They say, no, 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 we'll, we'll go on the other side. We'll help them settle the land. Then we'll come back. Then that's good. Um, in other words, if you're a mate, it means, yes, you can be your group as long as you see that the purpose of being a group is to then bring a collective blessing to the rest of the world. Then that's okay. 
You want to be a community, that's fine, as long as the purpose of your community includes what it can give the greater. You want to be a nation, that's fine, so long as it's not we're superior, you're inferior. Mm. But it's that we're going to gather together to offer something. And you can also gather together to offer something. We need you and you need us. We create an interdependent world. Then it can be a positive force. Um, I think where it's dangerous is where it's the club. It's us and not you. Mm. And ironically, you get this all the time because the people who will be saying, hey, we want control of our borders, we want some kind of identity, the others go, oh, you're these dangerous racists, you know. And actually, there's, there's what to say for both positions. Mm. The fears on both sides are legitimate. You just want to raise our identity because you're some, you know, and you, hey, you want to, you're just an identity insecure, want to beat people up. So, so. There's legitimate fears on both sides, but mm. I think that's, if anything, the Torah's model. And even what we're trying to be as a nation, we're not trying to be imperial in the Torah. Yes, we're going to have a land, one place in earth where we're going to live our values, but it's, you know, the, the verse in Isaiah, it's, uh, it will shine as a light and, and others will come and learn, rather than we're going to conquer other nations and make them like us. Mm. So it's when you see yourself, Abram's told right from the beginning that through you must be blessed all the nations of the world. That's when it's okay to form this group. So in other words, nationalism can be good or bad. It depends on... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I think the word nationalism, where the ism aspect is creating the nation and it doesn't have a deeper purpose behind it, is an issue. Mm. Um, healthier nationalisms are, are where you believe a nation has something to give the world and when you recognize that other nations do too. Otherwise, it leads to disrespect for other nations mm. and you believe the best thing you could do is conquer them. Um, so that's also something that needs... Now, what happens when we do think another nation in the world is, is following a terrible ideological system? What happens mm. if we think, rightly or wrongly, that uh, Mao, China is a terrible, I don't know, or mm. whatever place in the world? So, okay, so you have to know how, how you then try to build what you have that it resonates in the long run. Sometimes you have to give up on the short run. Mm. Sometimes the, the idea of trying to, you know, put down others might be... You just have to hope that in the long run, that not just hope, believe i believe that by believing in humanity we believe in this that by you living something trying to work on your model mm. that it will in the long run inspire the best in humanity to the yeah. extent to which you don't really have something of value well it's interesting that you say that uh nationalism well it, it's it's about believing in yourself as a nation and what you have to and by preserving that national identity. i don't mean just nation i mean communities i mean, I mean anything any group. Yeah, yeah yeah preserving that group uh, because you believe you have something valuable to give to the world, but everyone else has something valuable to give to the world. An interesting example where this actually plays out in reality is um, when people in America, uh, on versus the, the right versus the left, talk about American exceptionalism. And is, is America, so, so you tend to find people more on the right in America talk about, they say America is the greatest country in the world. Look at what we've given the world. Look at the, how we've saved Europe from tyranny, how we've uh, brought you know, freedom and democracy to so much of the world and how we're a, a shiny example of that. Um, but then, uh, sort of, people on the on the on the other side. Uh, I, I think Obama was once interviewed, and, and they say, was asked, "Do you believe in American exceptionalism?" And he said, "I do." In the same way that the Greeks probably believe in Greek exceptionalism, and the British believe in British exceptionalism. But then again, I have actually did once hear a conservative who said, "I think every p person of every country should believe." My country is, is, I, I, is the I best. Obama said that. I, I think the Americans have a lot to be proud of, and America's got another issue as well. It forged a nationality very differently to how most nations are forged. Mm. It, it didn't forge it out of an ethnicity. Most nations were kind of That's natural yeah. groups um, that spoke the same language, that had been, you know, that had the kind of history that lived under some kind of, of empire. Mm. And were naturally not 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 part. Whereas America didn't. America mm. was a bunch of Europeans from all sorts of different countries, and and it had to create a narrative. Mm. Uh, 
you could say a myth. You know, I don't like using these words like when Yuval Harari talks about fictions. No, there's something real to them as well. Yeah. So you have to create a, a story, a narrative of what we are gathered together to do. We mm. we we are people gathered around an idea. Mm. Uh, to some degree, the Torah is that too, although it was actually a an ethnicity coming out of Egypt, but, but it's also a, an idea. Mm. Here's a vision mm. that we're trying to live together. So yes, th there's aspects of it. And again, somebody on, uh, uh, who, who doesn't buy into it can, can be fearful of, does this sound childish? Does this sound supremacist? Does this mm. sound like, therefore, we can go bomb other countries that we don't believe? And somebody in that world can say, oh, we're fearful that you're trying to erase what we have to offer the world. You know, the world's so much a better place because of these ideas. So yeah. I don't think we have to, I think we always have to be careful about over pushing this is right and therefore, by the way, I think very often you can say this is right, that doesn't mean the other side's wrong. Mm. Mm. This has a lot of right to it and probably some wrong which we can't feel because when we're on this camp, you yeah, forgive yeah. the vices of it. Um, and they could probably see that better than we can. And they probably have some truths that, and some points that are valuable that we ourselves can't see. But this is, anyway, in the biblical model, that's what, what every tribe is meant to be is part of, of, of so, foreign forgiving. So you think it's legitimate for nations to be, to, to preserve a, a, an identity around an idea. Is it legitimate to want to preserve, to, as part of that, preser preserve ethnicity or is that just racist and uh, well, It all depends what preserving an ethnicity is. An ethnicity is not intrinsically valuable. It might be very hard for a human not to think in ethnic terms and therefore we might have to wrestle with the fact there is going to be some ethnicity whether we like it or not. And lots of groups identify ethnically. Mm. You know, we, we almost can't, unless we can reprogram the human brain, there's going to be that, especially minorities. Mm. And there's a sense of uh, uh, fitting together. Yeah. But ethnicity for its own sake, I don't think is a positive force. Like even when we talk about the value we place as a community in the Jewish world of Jews marrying Jewish, mm. when it's for purely ethnic reasons, I think that borders on, on, on unhealthy thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's because we believe the Jewish people has a, a mission and a history and something to offer the world and it can only be done by building the strength of homes yeah. that require then we're doing something very But for beautiful. example, when people in, you know, in some communities in Britain will say, I just don't recognize my town anymore, what they really mean is, maybe they're also talking about the culture, but they're saying the ethnicity is just completely different. Yeah, and we... Is that legitimate or is that... So I think there's a delicate balance. We, we absolutely cannot tolerate racism. Yeah. Right? This sense of, of, you know, I don't want you because your skin color is different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the, we have to recognize the deep human instinct we can't pretend it isn't there, mm. um, but we can certainly learn to override it. Mm. And, and we have done as a society. One of the interesting things is often, because our instinct to belong to a society mm. means that a societal value can override an, an immediate impulse mm. of me versus other. So if society, so society has to sometimes compensate for instincts and does very well. And mm. it's very important society that we keep reinforcing these messages. Um, I think the other problem we have is, is as humans, especially as we get older, we want some stability and the world is not very stable. Mm. Things are changing all the time and with technology, they're gonna be changing, disrupting even more. And uh, there's always going to be this, there can be this generational crash where almost the young wants to say, I wanna disrupt for the sake of disrupting because order is something I, I, I don't have, I'm at disadvantage over you who've been mm. in it longer. Mm. And the older saying, well, then we're gonna preserve order. And the younger saying, well, then you're just trying to preserve things for the sake of preserving them. Mm. Look, part of the beauty of trying to have, a, you see, it's part of, I think, so I'm getting muddling my sentences here. I was going to say something like this. Part of the beauty in a Jewish religion having a 3,000 year tradition is it allows you to be a lot more flexible and malleable in what is going on right now because my root is not where I grew up 
20 years ago, 30 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago. My route is 3,000 years ago. And then I can be very, very flexible. I think when you sever those roots as a culture, then people suddenly look at their roots in the last 30 years or 50 years, and, and, mm. and that's quite dangerous. So actually, ironically, creating this rootless world of meaninglessness where nations don't study their history, I think the fact the average British student isn't proud of British history is what's going to rise more nationalism, not less more unhealthy nationalism because somebody's going to say whoa that my town can't change because my identity is my little village i grew up where everyone looks the same and right, you know, right. that's going to fuel that because I, you can't get rid of the fact that humans need to anchor themselves in an identity mm. give them a rich identity and they can be confident to go out in the world take mm. away that identity they're going to have to construct a very localized one which is going to probably be more dangerous very very interesting there's plenty to think about there Plenty to think about on that topic. As long as it sounded good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's true. I like, you know, I, I, it's a shame we don't have call-ins and have people challenge these ideas. That's where I think. And I think yeah. that's probably what I learned from the Torah worldview more than learned from societal observation. Mm. Uh, but I think it coheres very well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure it's not the whole truth on this topic. Like I say, of course. when you ask me explicitly what Torah says, I'm pretty confident that's true. When you ask me to comment, use that to comment on the world, then always we have to have that, that, that give or take. Maybe what they would do a show people can call in and argue and <laughs> say talking rubbish and, you know, and all that What about, what about, comments on, on this you know what about what about if 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 a, if a nation's history is has has things they they aren't proud of we do that as a jewish people right right but i'm saying put it in there yeah yeah you know what our tanakh is full of things we're yeah, not proud yeah, of yeah great and what lessons did you as a nation learn from it right 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 you know we don't need to whitewash but we also don't need to do the opposite as well we mm. don't need to say oh the, you know so so britain's a good example it's got a colonial era well not everything about that was a disaster mm. but there was a lot of disastrous stuff in there okay so and what did we learn as a nation you know lots of other nations gained and lost as a result of that mm. and maybe on balance it was an absolute disaster but mm. okay so 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 talk about that. That's also part of our history. Yeah, yeah. Now you're right. If you were in Germany think, within a yeah, decade after think, the Holocaust, that could be a pretty awful. I'm saying, do you think you know. Germans today should have a sense? Do they have a sense I, of I responsibility think, uh, okay, to repent? That's a very good question. Their... How far that goes, I'm not in Germany and yeah. I can't comment. I think yeah. there's a level at which it becomes, you know. But I think even you know that's that's a very good example. It's an extreme. Yeah. But I think there's a point at which. Um, several decades later where they can learn and say we have learned lessons from mm. it and so forth but again you can't deny that that history has happened it's not something a kid can go to school in that country with and not have in the back of their mind has been there and how mm. do we respond to that collectively mm. and what does it mean you know so I think being richly embedded but again if you're richly embedded in 3,000 years of history it gives you opportunities to contextualize things and I'm wrestling as I'm saying this with that particular mm. example but mm. I think in most cases um, I certainly can't see something unhealthy now what I do believe in the globalists are right on is the fact the world has got more globalists should also be a part of a narrative. The mm. fact that we do, you know, that we've shifted our nationalism, let's say, from what it was in the 100 and whatever years ago to 19th century nationalism to today is also part of a positive story of what we can tell as well. It's also mm. part of the journey we've been on as a nation. I think that's fine. But all I'm saying is where the solution is to cut yourself off from your roots and don't really let abolish the nationhood learn. basically then i think you're just dealing with something that's so radically at odds with the way the human brain is wired and programmed and, and so on that you're going to create bigger problems and that uh, that comes back to exactly what you said which is that identity needs to partly be what i'm not and if everyone's just a citizen of the world right and what am i not alien somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and i agree I, I think that's why i just think balancing it's much healthier and the easy option sometimes is to try and take the extreme of just you know what history are you going to teach industrial revolution or whatever that's what we grew up in school learning right, right, right. Don't, don't really learn what it means to be british learn that we made cotton yeah, factories. Yeah, yeah okay it's an important part of our of, uh, but but um 
But no, British. Well, that's something to be proud of. Absolutely, especially if you grew up in Manchester, like you would say. <laughs> yeah, but um, but but in principle, all I'm saying is is you're running away from the fact that humans are going to want some kind of identity. Now, mm. how do you shape that into a force of positive? That's harder, mm. but it's more crucial to get that right. And do you think um, na- national identity is just? integral to the human needs. It doesn't have to be, but some form of tribal, some form, I tell you what it is, some form of identifying with something greater than just my empathy. Uh, There's an empathy tribe, which is a very instinctive human population Mm. prior to to agricultural revolution. That seems to have been the standard. And hunter-gatherers still work in these group clans of maybe 60 to 100 maximum. Several dozen people with whom you can empathize with each member. That Yes, there's a whopping instinct in the brain to do that. But as we need to build bigger populations, we need to be able to expand that to some others and sense of where I do belong and don't. That's going to be part of our instincts. Uh, again, I'm not the world's greatest expert on sociology on, on what mm. the possibilities are for how big those populations could get. Is it yeah. the city? Is it the tribe? Is it the nation? But wherever it is, I think some of it's going to happen and it keeps happening. And mm-hmm. however much you want to be a citizen of the world, so you'll form, uh, let's say, a political group where you demonize the people who don't agree with you and, and so forth, you're still going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another issue that's that's uh, come up, that's very relevant today when it comes to people's identity uh, is what's just called intersectionality. People often refer to it as identity politics, mm-hmm. which is that um, people are starting to say we need to look at the groups that people fit into, their gender, their racial ethnicity, their class. And that has to play a role in the extent to which they um, should, society should try to, I suppose, help them. Because people who are straight white males, for example, are the most privileged. I've always struggled with this concept because... As a straight white male. As a straight white male, <laughs> exactly. I've struggled with this concept. Why don't we just have discuss this ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm at the bottom of the rung, yeah. Um, no, but I've struggled with it because, you know, there. I'm sure I see plenty of uh, tramps on the street who are straight white males, and I don't think they're particularly privileged. Um, but I just wondered... I feel like there is there is something legitimate to say that, okay, a certain group in general has struggled, therefore, I, 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 therefore what? I don't know. Does that mean, you know, then you have the questions of affirmative action and all these issues. And I, I've struggled with this hierarchy of privilege thing, but I just wondered what your, what your take was on it. It's so difficult. It's difficult because wherever you lie, you feel accused and, and, or you feel there's somebody bullying you. Mm. Um, if you're in the groups that, that want to belong in the intersectionality pool, let's say, you know, you feel there's, there's been bullying, whether it's overt, covert, conscious, subconscious, structural. Um, and, and if you've, on, as you put in the, in the white male population, you typically feel, or some will feel that, hey, this is just a way of bullying us, you know, we're not exactly um, you know, females outperforming us at all sorts of levels and, and, and so forth. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of natural place of agreements I don't know the answer because I haven't lived inside the space of every single, you know, it would be great if we could suddenly like take a journey and live in different mindsets and live in different uh, cultures and live in different places and feel really what it's like to be there. Um, so it's an interesting question. Also questions of, of how collective it's, it's interesting because the counterweight to general liberal worldview, which is the individual sacrosanct, suddenly you're getting a sense of, well, if my ancestors were persecuted, um, it's probably affecting the way things still are right now. If there was an imbalance of power back then, 
uh, and, and in the case of, of, of gender, in the case of men and women, it's not even an issue of ancestry. We all had exactly the same amount of male and female ancestors. Mm. Uh, but if there were structures and, and, and them and us's and, and people fit into those categories, then it's the categories themselves that are responsible for some kind of reparation or some kind of, of, of re rejigging, which is interesting because it goes back to something we discussed earlier of how this overemphasis on the individual, just it, it's false. Forget the fact that it's, it's, it, whether it's better or worse, it's just not the way humans are. Mm. Um, so that's interesting. I do know... In Torah, we've often, oh look, we began the story as a persecuted group in Egypt. And yet, you know, for Egyptian converts and, and the Torah is an explicit, you can't keep pushing them off because, because you have to remember you have gratitude for the fact that you were strangers in their land and they looked after you. I mean, they, what do you mean they looked after They enslaved us, but they fed you. you know? So it's a very interesting perspective. And I think in general, the Torah doesn't like living in a world of perceiving yourself as a victim. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean the other society should perceive, oh, oh, okay, we did nothing wrong. Yeah. But certainly, I think, in, built into the Jewish national consciousness, sort of almost a consciousness, is this sense of when you do struggle and you're at the bottom, you know, look for the opportunity to move up and do. Now, I say that, that doesn't necessarily mean that all other groups have the same privilege, the same opportunity to do so. There could be unique strands of Jewish history. But what it, wherever we are, Self-pity is not a healthy place to come from. Mm. And I think l people love being in a world of self-pity. We love being the victims. So as we joke, you know, today the white male will say, hey, we're the victims. But, but uh, so I think self-pity is not a healthy place to come do from. You, do you think, is it legitimate to say, because of my group, I am at a, a so, disadvantage? Uh, that may be true. It may be true. Mm. It may well be true. I mean, there's certain glaring examples where you look at it and you think, you know, this has been tried and this has been tried and this has been tried and it's still a heavy underclass and, and, and there's got to be something structurally wrong. There's mm. got to be some way of breaking it. I think, it's not, I think it's less the question of, I think the question itself might be wrong and I think that's what people get, get into very aggressive posturing over. The deeper question is, let's take, let's, I don't think it's an unhealthy thing to say that let's take in America, but it's true in Europe as well. It, it typically ends up being that black populations are underprivileged. Let, let's start with that example. Yeah. You know, people might be afraid to use those words because it could immediately prompt some kind of racism. But almost any metric you look at, if you take any American social problem, take gun crime. Right? People want to say, America should ban guns. Maybe they should, right? Maybe they should change the constitution. Maybe they should. Let's forget that debate here. Why? Because gun crime in America dwarfs the gun crime in the Western world. It's true. What's interesting is homicide rates are already much closer. And white homicide rates and black homicide rates are almost on parity with where they are in the rest of the world. Because 99% of gun crime in America is one individual take a pistol and shoot you. In Europe, you just take a knife and machete and kill the person. Mm. They're not that different. You know, again, I'm not getting into the gun crime debate and, 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 and you know, these horrifying scenes of, of mass murders in schools and automatic weapons. I'm not going near that space. But you suddenly realize you're dealing with a black-white problem mm. or healthcare. You know, why does America rank 30th in the world? So, okay, you could say universal coverage, not. But in the end, why does America have such a, a, a high infant mortality rate, which in the end brings down its, its life expectancy rate lower than Britain, when actually for almost all illnesses, it has a much better rate. A person has cancer in England or America, they've got a much greater chance of recovering. Same with almost all illnesses, even including the population that's not insured in America, which is another whole major disaster or whatever. But so why isn't America's life expectancy higher than Europe? Because of high infant mortality rate in the black world. Oh my goodness, that's also a black-white issue. And wherever you turn, you're dealing with a group of clearly self-identifiable people who are wallowing in what appears to be some kind of trap at the bottom. How do you crack that issue? That should be a massive priority for any country that's got that problem. We have it in Europe as well, just we have smaller populations. So, mm. uh, so we, don't, we don't wrestle with it in the same way, we can kind of turn a blind eye. 
that's a real issue. I think people are afraid of it because it's so obviously will give voice to racism and a voice to, 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 to distinction and so on. So, you know, forget the saying just dealing with the issue. You've got to deal with that issue. That's a real issue. Now, do we then bolt onto all sorts of other populations? Not maybe yes or maybe no. It depends if the problems are the same or they're different. Depends how perceived they are versus how real they are. Mm. You can't deny that's a real problem. Now, you can say it's because of racism of the whites or because they have nothing to do with the racism of the whites. But you can't deal with the fact that there is a problem. You could say it's because they're racist two or three hundred years because they were enslaved. Who knows what it is? It's something. Mm. You've got to deal with it. You can't turn. And when you feel like you're turning a blind eye, some of that community is going to say, look, you've left us trapped in the bottom. The world's working very well for you, but it isn't working very well for me. Mm. Now, then does somebody else latch on and say, I don't like Western values. I don't like the current way of thinking. I should also be in the aggrieved pool. And we should. That might already be, you know. But I do think we have to deal with the reality that however we want to, we want to a post-racial world. Even if, and it may be true that the white population is very not racist on average in America. It may be true, but you're left with a problem. What are you going to do about it? I don't know the solution, but it should be a massive national priority, mm. whatever it is, mm. you know. So someone will say reparations. Maybe. So, but your objective should be, how can we all come together and create a situation where in 100 years time, there will be, everyone will grow up, right, where you genuinely, skin color has zero or almost indiscernibly small impact on where you're going to end up in life. That's a real issue. Mm. You know, is it blame this population, blame that fight, that, these are bad guys, these are good guys. That I think is, no, I think that, that's, that's probably not the, the, the right way forward. You know, trying to, trying to blame somebody because they, they've got a white skin color. Because a lot of white people say, well, I'm not racist. I would employ everyone exactly equally and treat them exactly the same. You know, that's not the issue. Leave that aside. But we have a real issue here. Mm. You know, wh where are politicians standing up and talking about it? And it is a scary topic to address. It is going to invite racism. It is, and you could make a case if we can solve it quietly and find proxy solutions. You know, I, I often think, should they, should they find those, because there are this problem with the criminal justice system. Again, we're now going way off Judaism here into America and stuff. But in the criminal justice system, it's well known there are certain crimes which seem to have a disproportionate amount of black um, blacks end up in jail than whites. If they're drug-related crimes and there's no other offense, could they do some kind of mass, uh, what's the word? Um, what's the word when they, uh, they uh, oh, my brain's gone dead here. Uh, the word when they release them, when they, um, uh, you know, the president gets the pardon or whatever oh, yeah. it's called, whatever it is. Whatever it's called. Maybe. Yeah. It, will that help? You know, so, so you know, but I, so, okay, we've moved on to another topic, but I, 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 we've moved on to, to a different area. And, and I, hope, I, hope, I hope nothing I said is offensive in any way, but, but I think that's a classical example where the intersectionality is like kind of this tribal warfare, but there is a real problem underlying it over there. Mm. Irrelevant of the tribal warfare. Yeah. But the but the, the specific issue of how you resolve when you get when you get for example on an American campus that okay you know we this population feel aggrieved by the way America is and yeah. we feel aggrieved and we feel aggrieved and you know and therefore the state of Israel is also evil because why okay then you're going to nonsense yeah. Yeah, then, you, then you're crossing over into a very much opportunistic, let's gather you people who are struggling on the bottom and make yeah. you as angry as we, you know, yeah. we're angry about another issue. Yeah. We'll try and tell you that, you're, yeah. that we should all blame. You know, when, when it's about, tell you, this is perhaps, after all that waffle, yeah. here's, I think, where the important distinction lies. Where it's about who I can blame, that's self-pity and resentment. That's such an unhealthy place for anyone to be. And is there no place, in Torah, is there no place for that? You know, when when we it's about, about the in, Jews leaving in Egypt, Torah, we usually, if we blame anybody, we blame ourselves. The temple's destroyed. So should we become anti-Babylonian, anti-Roman? No, we should look inside ourselves and say, because we had baseless hatred, God let his temple be destroyed. What are you talking about? There's Romans who destroyed it. We're not anti-Roman. That, well, that requires a belief in God. M maybe it does. Say... Maybe it does. But the point is that blame. Look at jo Joseph is sold into slavery. 
right? He could sit there wallowing in self-pity, resentment. These things are deeply unhealthy Mm. places to come from. There's a problem that needs a solution is a very deeply healthy place to come Mm. from. And I want you to be my partner in helping fix it because it will be better for me and better for you. Mm. And we as a population, as we rise, would have so much to give you as well. That is is a healthy place to come from. But in terms of that solution, you're saying it's better to be a place, to to come from a place of how can we maximize opportunity for, for people well, rather look, than... Well, look, in history, look, you will see, you know, one of the things that's very inspiring about the Martin Luther King and the movement and the people, it didn't feel, or maybe I'm just looking at, you know, sometimes you look back at documentaries and this all the time, yeah. yeah. But the, what I've seen, it doesn't feel like it was essentially about resentment and hate. No, it wasn't. It felt essentially like it's about, this is wrong, this is right, let's march Same together. Same with Mandela, for example, yeah. Well, I think the earlier Mandela was about that. which was, together. earlier, yeah. The later Mandela, I think, yeah. when that sense came across, the white population were able to say, okay, you're not, it's not about who's worse, and who, it's about we've got a problem. Our ancestors created, let's solve it together. I think that's typically what happens where it's more, I think it's typically where it's more effective. And intersectionality feels to me, whatever its merits, maybe, maybe there are some, that, that it's so much about who we can blame together. Hmm. So it's actually potentially not in, it's not inherently a I think the word intersectionality means we, we might look at a world and say, uh, let's say some oppressive group is able to divide and conquer. So let us oppressed people come together to fight right. for our rights. I think maybe unfairly, I think most of us, maybe because we're white males, you know, would look around and go, that's such a bad reading of the world. There's really no one oppressing you, yeah. you know, and you're just, you're just trying to blame. Or suffering is, is governed by so many other metrics. Whichever. Now, are we right or wrong? That's why it would be so nice to be able to walk into people's world to you, but it feels like it's so badly misguided. Yeah. And maybe because we're sensitive to the way it's manipulated to become an anti-Israel agenda and, and all this other stuff. Yeah. Maybe we're particularly sensitive, and maybe because we've, whenever groups get together to battle other groups over power, Historically, they've gone and wiped out Jews in the middle. You think of the Chmelnitsky massacres where suddenly underclasses en masse rose up against, against the overlord class and, and busily wiped out Jews in the middle. Yeah. So I think we also feel uh, an old historical sense of smell that smells something a bit dirty over here. Mm. There's, there's, this is going to come and become a war against the Jews as well. Or the mm. Jewish state is usually the proxy for it mm. right now. Um, so I think that's something which, which I might myself and perhaps you might be a little allergic to. And yeah. our nose on these things... Perhaps occasionally Jews, we can veer onto paranoia, but it's usually not bad. We've usually been trained historically to yeah. pick up on this, and it's hard to not feel it's also there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain groups are being manipulated for the sake of a deeper agenda, which might be hostility to Israel, which might actually be the least oppressed groups yeah. who are manipulating. What's quite it. interesting, actually, is where Jews fit in on the intersectionality uh, thing, because well, they're probably quite high up. Oh, what, in terms of modern-day privilege? And yeah, in terms of privilege, yes. In the other yeah, yeah, Maybe, but I don't think that these sorts of... In, in other words, it, it's, it's, it feels it, a bit silly. <laughs> But okay, but part, that's what I'm saying. We div- when we get into this issue, there's so many issues because yeah. there really are legitimate grievances, yeah, and there really of are. Of course. And again, part of the challenge is, it's a bit like I sometimes think some people look at the Jews and do they moan too much about anti-Semitism, mm. right? And we might look at other groups that they moan too much about, uh, you know, racism. And again, I think it's not a matter of anti-Semitism. I think we have to just look at what's the issue, what's the right, what's the wrong. But it's, it's complicated. It's not straightforward. There are groups that have genuine the current structure genuinely doesn't work for them. 
Mm. Um, and the solutions that have been tried might have gained some progress, but not others. And that's real. That's got to be a burning problem mm. that we've got to all think and, and, not, and not sleep at night over. Then there's other groups that might really be struggled to really call them oppressed, who often have a broader political agenda that's often outside the country they happen to be in, uh, where they don't like the political views of that country because it, does, it helps, it violates their global vision of the world. Mm. Uh, and those groups may then manipulate the other suffering groups and march against the state of Israel or something like that. You know, and, and that's. Mm. That's something which we would acutely be sensitive to, and, and again, sometimes perhaps oversensitive. But and that's why a lot of this, uh, yeah, you know, and you get, and you'll insti- you'll always get backlashes. The minute it's identity, the minute it becomes a power struggle, we want to push you down to raise ourselves up. The minute it becomes that, you're going yeah. to get major backlashes, and you get, you know, all sorts of again tribal politics. Yeah, and, and what actually comes to mind is how the Torah is very clear about. Um, not favouring the poor or the rich when it comes to... To justice. To justice, yeah. yeah. And that we shouldn't... That, that when it comes to justice, everyone should be treated equally with yeah, the law. Yeah, that's because the Torah is in the middle of polemic against favouring the rich. It also says you don't favour the poor. It's true. It's all true. And I think we've veered quite often yeah. Jewish topics a bit, if you want to <laughs> use this video footage or not. But, uh, no, I think there's certainly, uh, you know, Torah I, concepts that override uh, these, um, these discussions. Um, all right, so let's talk about uh, biblical criticism. Um, I, I have to—I must confess—I'm not much of an expert in it, but I, I have heard many arguments. Uh, people say suggest arguments uh, from secular university scholars that claim that the Torah clearly has multiple authorships, partly because of inconsistencies and uh, uh, maybe there are differences of certain letters or words between the ages of. of uh, uh, when Torahs have been uh, reproduced. Um, so the question is, are there contemporary biblical scholars of note who dissent from the supposedly unanimous view that the Torah uh, text is clearly from man because of the inconsistencies? Well, first of all, there are. I mean, there's not enormous numbers of them. And one of the major reasons for that, I think, is simply that somebody like myself wouldn't go anywhere near a Bible studies department in a university. If I believe, because I know that the notion of divine, you wouldn't be able to write a paper hypothesizing divine authorship. Mm. You've basically got to stick in certain paradigms and models, and I'd be incredibly uncomfortable doing it. Um, and you grow up inside those models, and you learn inside those models, and your questions no longer become who were the, but kind of which individual can we identify as the author. And You're just saying it, it would just... It's an incredibly uncomfortable... Uh, uh, like you, profanity, almost. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like an atheist trying to... Uh, learn Talmud and Yeshiva, it's a very difficult thing to do because the premises and axioms others are coming from are just very difficult for you, you're not going to agree with them and work with them. Right. Um, and so it's quite self-selectively usually picking people who are either, uh, and they will succeed in the system and rise up in the system, people who are very comfortable with the more traditional biblical That's critical views. But, but, if, but if you do, yes, I think Joshua Berman's a quite a good example nowadays. Yeah. I think um, historically there were some super, I mean, I don't think there's any good reason why you wouldn't call David Svi Hoffman a tremendous biblical scholar in secular terms, use the same methodology they do, the same knowledge and grammar and examination of subtlety. Vichil Yaakov Weinberg, another one. And these people uh, obviously, you know, came from a much more traditional uh, point of view and argued that biblical criticism is incorrect. Now, I think what the most orthodox world has done is just kind of just left the topic behind. Yeah. yeah maybe there have hurts Chumish was the last major public piece of work dealing with it because most people are not bothered by it for, by, for whatever reasons, just hasn't seemed to made its way into very mainstream orthodox consciousness that that might be changing with certain publications. I think that, that biblical criticism can and should be encountered on its own terms. 
Meaning, does an actual study of the text really lead to the conclusions that, let's say, okay, let, let's say we moved on from Wellhausen's hypothesis, but uh, which is what he his was the classical. He he brought together a synthesis of of of, of views before he had uh, what's called the J uh, J E um, P D R, if you like. The J and E was the the model that there's two names of God. In, in those days, it was seen as two names of God. That the the name that begins in English transliteration with a J or with a Y in in, um, and the name that begins with E L O K I M. Those two represent different religious traditions. Right. Um, later, that's been adapted. It's more common today to say that E would actually does use the other name as well, but that's because it just doesn't textually work otherwise. Yeah. Um, and eventually, those two came together. Then there was a kind of a, a in his model, those texts were very early. Um, and then the Deuteronomist text came along, let's say around the time of, of Yoshio, when they're trying to make religious reform. And uh, then the P in that days was considered a priestly text, the second temple. You know, then other scholars say, no, P actually has to be earlier. There's a lot of stuff and really, does P itself split in two? Is there an H and does A, J split in three and does E? And where do the boundaries go? And there's a huge amount of it. There isn't unanimity around this stuff. There have been very big scholars who challenged it. Umberto Casuto, for example, was a, I don't know if he was orthodox. Um, it's not, I don't know if he believed in, in God writing the Torah, but he, he came from an orthodox traditional worldview. And he certainly argued that biblical text actually doesn't look like that because you can't split two authors, although you should do by those methodologies. In the Joseph story, it's clearly one coherent narrative from beginning to end, yet by that method you should split it and so forth. And he had many other questions. For example, why would an author take two existing texts that have already been believed in, chop them and cut them up? Especially if, as the classical viewers, it was when the kingdom was split to northern and southern. And when they came together, when the northern kingdom was destroyed, it came to the south and somebody then wove the two texts together. That is an incredibly implausible concept. The, the, the south has won. Its king would not want to include northern motifs that are not pro the southern kingdom or the Judean masses. The Why would you want to unify? They have no choice but to be part of you. You don't right. need to. They're in, they're in your kingdom whether they like right. it or not. Your priests don't want to be part of their priests. I mean, it, it sounds like weird. And if you are going to weave them together because the text is seen as so sacred, you're going to create something everybody thinks is not sacred. So, okay, now you can't get yourself into the psychology of people, but that's a massive problem. But your, your major problems also, I mean, he points out, you know, now, Kasuta was largely ignored. Um, but they're almost the same arguments were rerun by a guy called Wybray, who's a, who basically uses very similar arguments. And he came up with a kind of a different hypothesis, a fragmentary hypothesis, or a kind of rolling snowball type of text added and added and added over time. There's different hypotheses. There's some very brilliant thinkers who espouse them. There's some, you know, the, the kind of the classical sort of JPD with some modifications so on that you've got Richard Elliott Freeman, you've got, uh, got um, um, James Cougar. You have the, in Harvard, interestingly, you have a he very heavy concentration of these people, yeah. some of whom are traditional Jews as well, one of whom at least actually claims he is, would say I'm an Orthodox Jew in his level of observance and so forth. So, um, so you've got this kind of stuff. Now, there are some very, very deep questions on all these hypotheses which try to date the books later. And there's some brilliant thinking that goes behind it and trying to, you know, one of them is, is, if anything was written, I mean, they, the earliest they'll give a text usually is about the eight, when the kingdoms were split, and there's reasons why they, they do that. But one of your big problems is, for example, they would identify a text clearly as post-exilic because it talks about the exile, or it's clearly um, pre, it must be after the tribes were split, it, or before the tribes are split because it doesn't mention, it mentions all 12 tribes. You'll try and look for clues like that, or it must be when Hebron was there because it mentions Hebron. But there's a big glaring problem. Anything written after the 10th century BCE mm. should have, by all these accounts and logic, mentioned the most central city in Israel, which is Jerusalem. I can argue a northern text wouldn't, but a southern one would. There's not a single mention of the word Jerusalem in Torah 
every other biblical book has Jerusalem. Mm. Even books like Ecclesiastes, you know, are nothing, not narrative. But not, you know, or Song of Songs. Uh, but not, nope. Okay, not every book. I think Esther doesn't. Does Esther? Yeah, even Esther does. Yeah, who was exiled from Jerusalem. Of course. Yeah, they go and conquer Jerusalem and they don't occupy it. But everything's got Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the most mentioned city in the whole of the Bible. And it's pretty much, I don't know, someone will check me in every book. But it's there all over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Mm. But not in the Torah. Mm. And that glares at you. These five books were all written pre-10th century BC. Mm. All of them. It's always got 12 tribes in it. That's before, forget the northern kingdom being destroyed before the first two tribes are destroyed. Otherwise, you'd have some explanations why Reuven and, and Shimon would be destroyed, but you don't. Um, they're clearly written before the temple is built. I mean, this is a point actually uh, Rich Elliot Friedman makes in Critique of Wellhausen. Um, it's clearly, because the emphasis on the tabernacle, how you weave it, how, they must have been a tabernacle at the time of Torah. You've got 44 chapters about it. Okay, not all of them about the but details. Maybe of it. they were writing it as like this is an, an ingenious an retrospective. Story. Yeah, but then the whole biblical criticism failed because they're always looking for those clues like that. Mm. On the contrary, if you're trying to you write a book where God would retrospectively explain everything, you're going to want him to retrospectively point to Jerusalem, just like he points to Bethel yeah. and yeah. Hebron and all these others. Yeah. Make Jerusalem, you know, all yes, and it's so easy. And by the way, even if you want to say they took an earlier text and redacted it later and edited it later, well. Because later it's going to be a Judeo, you're going to want the temple to be the center. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about this tabernacle that once existed pre 10th century. Great. So when you say, and you, the name where I will settle my, my where I will rest my name, all the way through the book of Devarim and Deuteronomy, just add in my holy place in Jerusalem, you'll build me my house. That's all you have to add. That's very little editing. You'd have solved all your problems. And if you're Ezra coming. You see, part of the problem biblical critics have to deal with is if the book really is pre-10th century BC, and there's a few arguments against it too. I mean, maybe we should have a whole much broader discussion. It's not fair to those scholars to just try and like a, knock it yeah, off in a five-minute yeah. little thought. Yeah. I, think, I think one needs to really study, you know, look carefully. There are real arguments for why they think it's later and how it goes with the archaeological record, though that they often are not as strong as they, they look. In fact, they're, they're not usually, I think they're not usually as strong as they look, I should say. Um, but, but the real problem is this. If it's written pre-10th century BCE, mm. why does it talk so much about exile? So if you say God wrote it, that's not a problem. God can prophesy about an exile, right? Well, it prophesies about exile. Exactly. It doesn't talk. Oh, but mean, if you're a human author, you're not going to have so much time warning about exiles. Maybe it, trying to scare the population. Uh, maybe trying to scare them, but then you get to the end of the book of, of Devarim and you're saying, no, I know this is what's going to happen to you. Mm. If you're writing that pre 10th century, that's remarkable that happens. And, and by the way, even if you say it's post-exilic, it's still remarkable it all happened again. That starts to look like God writing it. But if I know it's human authors, or I'm convinced it's human authors, well then, but some of it's clearly ancient. So now I need some books to be earlier, some books to be later. And that, I think, is a big part of where biblical criticism is really dealing with. What everyone agrees, this cannot be one single unified book written by a human author. It's either one single unified book, because since so much of it has to be early, it would all have to be early. Uh, which would have so many prophecies in it would be God. Yeah. Um, not to mention national revelation stories you'd have to work out how to get around and so on. Whereas the biblical critical model would allow books to be written over various periods of time and the final redaction of final bits and, and exile bits. But why is that significant that it's not written by one human being? No, because the, then you're, the, if you don't want to believe it's written by God, you're going to have to say it's written by lots of human beings in lots of different times. Why is that significant? Because you're going to have to anchor some of the texts early, which they clearly are. Yeah, for example, even silly little details like Joseph being sold for 20, 20 shekels as a slave. We now know the Egyptian records, how much slaves were sold, and any later author would have assumed they were sold for more. 
Interesting. Only at that time was sold slave. But, but it's deeper than that. When you actually look at the, at the uh, there's a very interesting paper came out about a year or two ago on what's called loan words. And as any objects that Jews wouldn't have had access to before Egypt, when they come out of Egypt, it uses the correct era Egyptian word for. Okay. Um, which wouldn't have been accessible to an author later on. All the way through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and right. so all the many objects in the temple which it wouldn't have had a native Jewish word for. Um, but okay, I mean, this is a broader discussion. One of the very interesting pieces of research, and maybe this will conclude again, and I, I feel bad to not do justice to this topic, but it's just something to think about, is that a few years ago they ran, started running computer research into the Bible, into the Torah. Um, and they took some very interesting, sophisticated software. If you randomly scramble two texts, it will be able to unscramble them. How does it do it? It finds synonyms. The classical Bible critics were often doing their work. Look for two words for the same thing. You'll find one lot concentrated here, scramble one lot concentrated here. Let's suppose you can't the scramble words. the verses. The Let's say the verses. Let's say you scramble them. It will unscramble them with 99% accuracy. And then they, it can't tell you how many authors a text has, but you can say if it has one author, if it has two authors, how would it best divide? If it has three authors, how would it best divide? It has four. And there was lots of headlines in the world because it had allegedly proven biblical criticism true because the p-text, the priestly text, it had split the Torah into two and it had taken the, what was called, it had split it 90% the same as the p and non-p. That's mm -hmm. so like, hey, Bible critics got it right. Until you realize that we also agree, us traditionalists, that most of what they call p and non-p are written in different styles. Most of what they call p is the non-narrative parts of Torah, the laws, the you know how to build the temple. All that you don't, you and I also write in very different styles when we write uh, instructions and laws than when we write stories. Mm -hmm. The genius of biblical criticism had been able to identify another bunch of narrative stories that are also supposed to be written by the same author in the same style, and there, the computer seems to have said no. For example, Genesis chapter one. So Richard Elliott Freeman wanted to say it was written by a P author, and so did others. But according to the computer, that would land on the wrong side, and so forth. And almost all, in other words, it didn't split Torah into P and non-P, it split into narrative and non-narrative. Interesting. So what, what was P and non-P? P was the notion of a priestly writer. Okay, priestly writer. Right, to Wellhausen, that was the latest writer, right, right, to right. others, to more recent thinkers. No, that would have been an early. Anyway, but, uh, but the point is that, is that if anything, it's, so that seems to back the traditional side. If you're going to split it, it'll be interesting. And then, of course, Devorim, which all of us agree is, you know, is Moses' speeches, which God told him to write. So, so that's clearly different. But then when it's looking for more difference, where's this J and E? It couldn't find it, meaning it almost for sure is false. That's a very, very... Uh, powerful thing to say, but these computers are better than humans at doing what humans do and looking at distinctions. Mm. And, and it seems to have concluded pretty clearly that really what became the original basis of biblical criticism, looking at the different authors based on different names of God or, or different, different ways of splitting it, in fact, doesn't work. In fact, why? Now you see, humans have a thing called confirmation bias. If we split a text anyway, we would probably be able to find things that land on one side, not the other, because randomly they will. There's enough vocabulary that yeah. you'll do it randomly. So humans have used ingenious thinking about the stories that they believe would go on one side, and then when they don't work, then you move more of that way, and then you move, you know, yeah. till you eventually get something that fits. But when the machine tested it effectively scientifically with equivalent to controlled experiments, is this really the right split? It's not. Mm. And that should have been devastating for at least a large part of biblical criticism. Mm. Um, it won't be, because um, for many reasons. But but um, but I, anyway, 
much more to say about What's it. What's curious is that people haven't identified what they think is at least one of the authors. Oh, no, they have. Oh, they have? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You've got to get more familiar with uh, it. As I say, well, look, completely there's guys, that, there, there are some in the field who are brilliant. There's some who have imagined. You, know, you feel when you study the field, there's some who are kind of more cautious and very ultra scientific. Some who are looking for the patterns and the coherence and have great. Oh, yeah. There are some who have really tried to work hard on who the figures are. Going all the way back to, you know, all the three biblical critters, there's been people who are trying to work out who the author is. Like what kinds of people? Um, well, uh, people hypothesized that Ezra wrote uh, at least the P text, oh, you know, and okay. and uh, and uh, you know, did Jeremiah do the deal? Was it uh, Baruch There's it all sorts of, uh, of of you know people. It might be Chazkiah scribes. There's definitely speculation about it. Was Genesis written? Was parts of, of what they wanted to call J text written by a woman? Because women always seem to win in those stories, you know, uh, uh, and so oh, forth. Well, so so there's a lot of speculation, you right. know. But I think in the end, my understanding, and, and you know, we all come from the position we come from, is that I do think that it will be a very good exercise for some scholars who take a more traditional view. We'll probably need a group of them because individually, I'll just be laughed at and, and, and laughed out of university department. You, you couldn't, you couldn't go in an undergraduate course and, listen and write your hypothesis as God wrote the Torah. You, you wouldn't. Be, I don't think you'd be allowed to admit it. Um, but if you could try and make this argument in real academic journals you know rigorously yeah i actually think it will why not because well because the you can, no, they... who's going to study and go up to phd in that stuff who's going to take mm. decades of you know pretend they believe in something else you'd have to go along with those hypotheses all the way up the academic system till you were an established academic yourself and then you might have a chance of being able to argue with the system it's not very free and fair well no well first of all people in the system will say to you well, this is not some conspiracy this is what open-minded academic research has yielded. Right, 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 uh, and right, there's right. powerful arguments for it. So Again, I, I, road, I'm not right. being fair. I, th well, I think I'm being fair, but uh, you want to have one of that? You, you know, maybe we should have yeah, a discussion yeah. one day with a Bible critic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because the, the, I, I'm portraying what I think are, 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 are the faults in it. And it's not like nobody's ever thought of some of these. There are arguments that, that try to be made. There are some brilliant scholars in the field. There are some people who read their work and whether they agree or disagree, they go, wow, that was really clever. I don't agree with it because A, B, C, and D. But, but, but that's a quite, like, I enjoyed reading that. And often you'll read something and they're connecting two stories you go oh that's that's a brilliant connection mm. you know i don't think it means the same author of the two stories one's manifestly you know using the style of words the other's just like we you know once thomas jefferson writes the american constitutionist richard Lee freeman used this example people write in that style when they okay but 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 there is a connection you know so you do sometimes think there's, there's clever things there but i i don't think it has the force or power that it's assumed to have and i don't think it's compelling in the end i think it's brilliant but i don't think it, it makes yeah. a strong case and for me i've always just I, I feel like for, for me, there's 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 enough as you've mentioned whether it's the issue of uh, trying to pull off a, a claim of national revelation and also the issue of the different uh, prophecies surrounding how Jewish history will manifest. For the, these are my two very strong anchors uh, when it comes to believing in the divine authorship of the Torah. So these other issues of inconsistencies have never really uh, bother me. But I think we should hear them out. Uh, Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think so. so maybe we should do a maybe we should do a who wrote the Bible debate. Maybe it's something we can uh, consider. Anyway, Rabbi Roy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV podcasts. 
You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Freeman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.